Richard's memory is fine. He's just gone completely deaf. Both. <laughs> Bob, can we bring up the lesson? I agree. My, no, my tablet is quite awake. Is it not brought? Hang on, it seemed to stop broadcasting. Apparently, it's my fault. Wouldn't be the first time. Good morning. How are you guys doing? It's interesting. You're all just a little blurry this morning. I have two pair of glasses which look almost exactly the same. These are my computer glasses. While my real glasses are at work, sitting on my desk. Yeah. So, uh, when you heckle me, I won't be sure who it is. <clears throat> anyway, this morning we're talking about Jesus teaching Nicodemus out of John 3. Memory verse, same as it's been for several weeks. Let's uh, say it together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now last week we looked at the first signs Christ showed in his ministry of his divinity, the very private miracle at the wedding at Cana, and his cleansing of the temple showing his authority over his father's house, and the need to worship God correctly. We also discussed anger and how to distinguish, how to tell righteous anger from sinful anger. Now this week we're going to look at Jesus' nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, perhaps one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, containing the most memorized verse in the entire Bible, and we will, as usual, be using uh, text readings by Alexander Scorby. Speaking of which... Chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So Nicodemus is identified by political party and position. He was a Pharisee, that is, a, a group that fanatically believed in personal purity and following all of the religious laws, they also accepted the oral tradition. Remember, you had the written word handed down by God, and you had an oral tradition, which the Pharisees were believed was equally important. Um, and it, it was a lot more involved uh, in, in minutia of details of their life. And Christ uh, accused them of ignoring the word of God, in favor of this oral tradition, the word of man. He was also a ruler of the Jews. That is, he was a member of the 21, excuse me, 71 person Sanhedrin that ruled Judah. In reality, Rome ruled it, but if it didn't bother the Romans, the Sanhedrin took care of it. Um, he gave Jesus the respectful title of rabbi, which can be translated into English as either teacher or master or kind of both. And he says, we know, based on your miracles, that you come from God. Now, this passage comes right after the cleansing of the temple. So, what miracles? They didn't know about the miracle at Cana. They couldn't have. It was too private. They didn't accept his cleansing of the temple as authoritative. As a matter of fact, they objected to it. 
But if we look in John 2.23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So there were miracles which Christ performed. They're just not specifically recorded in John or any of the other Gospels. Now, when Nicodemus greets Jesus, he says, we know, not I know. So who's we? Maybe it was a small group in the Sanhedrin, which meant Jesus had some silent supporters there on the rulership. Now, if it was a big part of the Sanhedrin, if they recognized that he was from God and yet still ignored him, that's, that's quite a bit of audacity. That's, that's a lot of nerve. So the next passage here in John, as we continue this passage. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So we're going to go on and talk about this passage, but I want to talk about a word first, because you'll see it quite a bit in the New Testament. Verily. What's a verily? Has anyone driven here this morning in their verily? You, you see it all. What, what, is, what does verily mean? Truth. Okay. Christ is saying, truly, I am telling you. And he's saying it twice. Truly, truly. Now, that is uh, an aspect, as I understand it, of Aramaic. Um, and Aramaic is similar in this manner to Hebrew. The Hebrew doesn't have the word equivalent of very. Nor does it have the er or est comparative. So we could say big car, bigger car, biggest car in English. Or we could say very big car. Right? All are modifiers to the term big. Hebrew and Aramaic don't have that. Instead, they just repeat it. It's a big, big car. And a really big car is a big, big, big car. So when Jesus is saying, verily, verily, he's meaning... I tell you very truthfully. Just wanted to make sure everybody understood that because it pops up all the time in the New Testament. It's usually Christ saying it, and he's introducing it at the beginning of his sentence to let people know, hey, this is important. Thankfully, he didn't use air quotes. Or if he did, they're not in the scriptures. Instead, he verily, verily. So this passage... Nicodemus comes to Jesus, greets him as rabbi, says, we know you're from God. Jesus doesn't waste any time in social discourse. He goes straight to the teaching moment. He says, oh, and, and, and there's a lesson here. When it's time for teaching to be done, get on with the teaching. God gave Jesus a window of opportunity and he seized it. So often when we have a chance to witness about Christ and God gives us an opportunity, 
We just let it go by. Jesus starts at the core New Testament doctrine. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is the perfect foil. Um, and I don't mean a weapon. I don't mean aluminum in a, in a, in a, uh, a roll. A foil is the perfect person to work off of. Uh, in dramedy, you've... In dramedy, yeah, great. In comedy, you've got the comedian and the straight man. And without the straight man, the comedian is not as effective. Similarly, I believe that God prepared Nicodemus for just this moment. Because Nicodemus has the perfect lack of understanding, which sets up Christ to explain everything, and John, the writer of the gospel, to write down their conversation. 400 years earlier, Plato, in writing down the wisdom of Socrates, made up discourses, conversations between Socrates and his pupils to better illustrate the ideas that Socrates had. God is doing the same thing here, except he doesn't have to make up a conversation. He just brings the right man in, and the conversation happens. It's a very effective way of explaining an idea by using another person to bounce the idea off of. Now, Nicodemus immediately under, misunderstands when Jesus says, you must be born again, because his mind is stuck on the physical. And he's saying, I'm a little bit large to be born from my mother's womb again. I have a hard time understanding this. What you're saying doesn't make sense. And Jesus says the second birth is not physical, but spiritual. And he says it's both of water and of the spirit. And those of you who are familiar with a common heresy will recognize this verse as the source of that misunderstanding. There was a church right over here for many, many years that preached the full gospel. Oh, I air quoted. And, and these are the folks who believe that you are saved by Belief and baptism. And then if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And this is the verse they turn to, where Christ says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, they have it wrong. That's not what Christ is saying. He's just the verse before referred to a born again, a new birth. And in the verse after, he talks about a physical and a spiritual, and that's all he's talking about here. Born of water, physical, via the waters of birth, and then born of the Spirit. Nothing to do with baptism, not that water. Obviously, if you're never physically born, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You don't exist. But then there's a second birth of the Spirit. And after that, there's a verse about the wind, and it's simple. We all experience the wind. We've all, maybe not in Houston, which is one of the least windy cities in the world. But I, I've been up this, I keep going up to Chicago on business. Chicago, the windy city, where the wind waits around the corner and asks, is he coming? Because when you turn that corner, it tries to knock you over. But most people who experience wind don't understand it on a scientific basis. 
But you don't have to understand wind to experience wind. And that's all Christ is saying to Nicodemus. You don't have to understand all the mechanicals of this spiritual birth to receive a spiritual birth. It would be much harder to be saved if we had to teach them the entire Bible before they could get saved. But salvation is a simple idea. Let's continue, please, brother. Or Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's a very big passage. I mean, obviously, thousands of sermons have been preached on it, and it, it, it's used very much, obviously, in bringing people to Christ often. And poor Nicodemus is just trying to buy a clue. He does not understand what Jesus is talking about. And again, he's the perfect foil because it gives room for Jesus to explain himself further. Now, I believe that David or Abraham would have understood this idea of being born again. Certainly, you can see it all through the Psalms. You can see it in the lifetime of Abraham that he understood this concept of a rebirth, but the Pharisees had gotten too lost in the details. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. And the Sadducees, their counterparts, had rejected all aspects of the supernatural. And so Christ reproves Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He says, are you a master in Israel? Are you the person responsible for teaching? Are you the person who's supposed to have mastered and understood all the doctrines of Judaism and you don't understand this? He says, we speak. This is interesting. If you look at the uh, passage, verily, verily, verse 11, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. So, is Christ speaking as part of the Godhead Trinity? We speak, Christ and the Spirit which was fulfilling filling him, and the Father who sent him. Or is he speaking of all the prophets who've tried to bang the ideas of God into the hard heads of Israel, you decide which interpretation you're more comfortable with. I happen to lean to the prophets. We speak what we know. How do the prophets know it? God told them. We speak of what we have seen. 
God showed it to them. You, and that's not just Nicodemus, that's collectively all of Israel, reject our message. That whole passage is a great reproof of Nicodemus in particular and the leadership of Israel that will not accept this latest prophet God has sent, his only son. Jesus says, basically, I have to dumb down my message and you're still not getting it. He says, no man has gone up to heaven for this, but I came down with it just for you. And I came not just with a message, but with a mission. And then he talks about the story of Moses raising the serpent in the wilderness. Anybody remember this from uh, our discussion many uh, over a year ago now? Not so much, Sandy? Okay, so the children of Israel out in the desert once again are complaining to God about the provisions, about how God's taking care of them. And God says, fine. And he sends what are described in the Bible as fiery serpents. I don't think they were physically on fire. But when they bit you, it burned. And if they bit you, you died. And the serpents are throughout the camp. And the people turn to Moses and say, yeah, okay, we get it. We sinned. We're sorry. What do we do? Moses turns to God. God instructs Moses to cast, fashion, a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole in the middle of camp. And if someone is bit by the snake and they look at the snake and believe they're cured. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And this is a story that Nicodemus should have been completely familiar with. If he wasn't, he's really falling down on the job. It speaks of God's salvation and of the importance of belief and faith. Now, does this mean Nicodemus got it? I doubt it. Because frankly, Jesus' apostles didn't understand the crucifixion until after it happened. So, I don't see Nick coming up with it either. And then it says, whosoever believes, take note Calvinists, whosoever, not a selected few, anybody, can have everlasting life. The alternative is to perish. And then comes the verse. The verse we all knew if we were in, grew up in church by age, I don't know, five. Um, one of the few verses in the Bible that you can take completely out of context and it still works. Because it's very contained. For God, author and the originator, so loved. I mean, what, what a wonderful idea. The world, all of us. That he gave. Love gives, and he gave such a wonderful gift, his only begotten son, that whosoever, anybody that we drag in off the street can be saved. They may not choose to, but they have, it's there if they avail themselves. Whosoever believeth in him, a specific requirement, should not perish, and we're all heading that way without it but have everlasting life. But it continues, Christ was not sent to condemn the world, which is what humanity deserved. It's even what Israel deserved. For 400 years, they had been ignoring God. God had been silent, and they'd been quietly kind of heading over this way instead of staying on his path. 
But Christ was sent to redeem mankind because the condemnation was already in effect. And belief becomes the ticket out of condemnation because condemnation is our default. Uh, Scientists would say our ground state, the state we exist in without effort. We just live in sin. Condemnation. Comes natural to us. But born again, a phrase perhaps overused in society today, it was really popular in the 70s and the 80s with the Jesus movement. And then people kind of backed off of it because it was being mocked. But it's the right statement. It's a biblical statement. It's one of the most accurate pictures of salvation. It's also a very Old Testament idea. And this is why Jesus was disappointed that Nicodemus couldn't get it. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 6, beautiful verse in the Old Testament, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. What a wonderful picture of conversion. A new heart and God's spirit living within us out of the Old Testament. And whether we talk about a new birth or a new heart, the idea is new, a change. Next passage in John, brother. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And light as an analogy for God is used elsewhere in the Bible, and it's a great one. Darkness, first of all, is simply the absence of light. And sin is everywhere that God isn't. Darkness hides while light reveals. And those who live in their sin instinctively avoid the light, avoid coming to God because it shows who they are. Sinful mankind does not like to self-examine. They'd rather hide. And even men of God, when they're exposed to the true light of God, (laughs) they feel undone. Uh, You look back at the story of Isaiah, okay, called to be a prophet of God. And he has a vision of the temple in heaven. And when he sees God, he sees who he is and he sees what he's done. And it drops him to his knees or to his face. I don't recall. And he says, I am undone. That doesn't mean his shoelace came untied. It means he feels so guilty he wants to die. Because he's seen who he is and he's in the presence of the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe. This is the light of God. As Christians, we are always to come to the light that we have. I'm pointing at an imaginary Bible, of course. The Word of God. It allows us to see who and what we really are. And it can be uncomfortable. 
but it's necessary because we cannot eliminate hidden sin in our life if it stays hidden. And as we look, excuse me, at this lesson in John 3, there's also in here a key concept about Christ's purpose in coming to earth. According to this passage, he was sent that the world might be saved. This was his direct mission. But he had a more general mission that he accomplished throughout his entire ministry. And by saving the world, he also accomplished this mission. Let's take a look in John chapter 6, three chapters later, starting in verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Christ said he did not come to earth to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father, but why not his will? He's God after all, right? Why should he have to follow God the Father's will rather than his own will? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God. He's equal, in fact, to God the Father. Why not his own will? He is God, but in his incarnated form, he's also human. The spirit is willing, we're told, but the flesh is weak. If Christ here on earth was relying on his own will, in a tough situation, his human will could have faltered. So very wisely, he did not rely on his own will, but was there to do the will of the Father, which was unchanging and unfailing. And also, it provides a wonderful example for us. We should not be doing our will, own will. We should be following the will of the Father. By counting on God's will, there was no chance of failure. And hopefully, we can see that inspiration for us. He came to do the will of the Father, the will of the Father was that all that were given to Christ would not be lost along the way. Eternal security in a verse. It's a wonderful thing. The will of the Father was that everyone who saw the Son and believed on Him might have everlasting life. You have to see who Christ is. I don't mean you have to stand next to Him and view Him. You don't have to look at a picture of Him on the wall, but you have to have an understanding of who He is and His purpose. You have to see Him. And then you have to believe on him. Merely seeing him, being aware of his mission is not enough. There are people in hell today who knew full well who Christ was and what he came to do and rejected him. And then if you see and believe, you will be raised into heaven on the last day, the verse says. Next passage in John, please, brother. Chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. 
And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Everybody know the context of this passage? When is it? When in Christ's ministry? Right before Calvary. Right before Calvary. Where, is he, where is he when he's praying? Garden of Gethsemane. So, while most of our lesson this week is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in Jerusalem on the first Passover. This passage is three years later, at the very end, Passover again. Well, actually, just it's about to be Passover. It's not quite. Um, and Jesus is in the garden, and he asks God to glorify him. Now, this is a request for his resurrection. There's no glory in being tormented, in being whipped, carrying a cross, being crucified. Not a lot of glory there. But three, there's not a lot of glory in dying. But in three days later, being raised and brought back to heaven, well, there's glory. So what Christ is praying for here is an event that will happen in three days. And the purpose that he asks God to glorify him is not to glorify him, but to glorify God. Because while Jesus went back up to glory, everyone who saw the empty tomb had little choice but to glorify God who arranged it. Or at least recognize we may have been backing the wrong horse. He's now finished his ministry of glorifying the Father. He glorified him in preaching and in praying. He glorified him by clearing the temple. He glorified him by performing miracles. He glorified him by praising his name. He glorified him for di by dying for us. He glorified him by obeying him. And that's sometimes the part we forget. Because we come here on Sunday morning and we glorify God by singing praises to him. And we glorify God by praying or listening to praying. We glorify God by preaching or listening to preaching. And then we leave here and we should be glorifying God by obeying God. And that's the harder part. That's the part we often fall down on. Continuing in Philippians, please, brother. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is our example. Because he rejected personal glory and honor. He set aside all of his earned privileges. And he performed every ugly job that God the Father assigned him down here. 
whether it was being hungry, whether it was 40 days of fasting in the desert, whether it was being dead tired and witnessing anyway, whether it was being beaten and dying. He was obedient up to and including the sacrifice of dying for our sins. Therefore, God rewarded him, but Christ's glorification becomes God the Father's glory. Everything reflects back up to God the Father. Everything that is done is to bring glory to God. Now, all of this glory to God, worship God alone, sentenced to hell if we don't do it his way, really infuriates the unbelievers. It just gets right up their nose. In a lesser being, the commandment to worship him and him alone would be the worst form of arrogance. In seeking his glory, is God a narcissist? Why not? It would be narcissism in anyone else, wouldn't it? In anyone else, it would be narcissism. But God is God. There is no one else like God. If God seems out of control in his glory, it means that we've lost sight of God. We're judging him as one of us. And he's not. He is the eternal, immutable, sinless, omnipotent, omniscient, supreme being. If idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, then if God shares the stage with anybody, he's guilty of idolatry. And that is sin. So it might seem a strange idea, but it's only appropriate for all the glory to go to God. Because he is God. Not a God, the God. As the eternal, infinite creator, he deserves all the glory. Keep your perspective. Don't start trying to apply our standards to God. You're just going to get yourself mentally in trouble. Dan, Don Barker of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, you got to love that title, wrote in his book, Godless, speaking for myself, if the Bible, heaven, and hell exist, I would choose hell. Having to spend eternity pretending to worship a petty tyrant who tortures those who insult his authority would be more hellish than baking in eternal flames. There is no way such a bully can earn my admiration. He has a viewpoint of God which paints God in the position of a human. And that's the way mankind has always pictured their gods. Look at every religion in the history of the world that has gods. And what do they act like? Us on a bad day with eternal power. They're bullies, they're punks. And this is the picture that this man has of, well, actually he has no picture of God because he claims to be an atheist. But this is the image he's casting God into. Clearly he misunderstands heaven, hell, and God. God is the creator and he has inalienable rights. You know, our, our constitution or the declaration says we have inalienable, it'd be great if I could say that word, inalienable rights. I'll tell you who has inalienable rights. God has inalienable rights. 
And he has the right to our worship. Yeah, you might as well come up, brother. He has given us everything, and he continues to bless those that are in rebellion. You don't see sinners walking around and it's raining just on them. They get the sunshine like everybody else. You don't see wild animals going out of their way to attack just them. Because God treats them, even though they're in rebellion to his creation, he generally supplies their needs. He blesses them the same as he blesses us. Poor Don has got no clue about the reality of God, and he has no reality about hell, and he's not going to enjoy his education one of these years.